We need joy, especially this winter. At Christmas, we remember that Jesus brings joy. And if we open our hearts to him, we will experience the blessings that only he brings. That's the message of the classic Christmas carol, Joy to the World. A song written by a man who was looking for joy. When he was young, Isaac Watts didn't like going to church much. There was a problem with worship. A disconnect between the message and the mood in church. Christians believed the most joyful of all news, and yet when they gathered for worship, it was the most boring and uninspiring experience of the week. It didn't seem right. As a college student, Watts wrote to his father about the singing at church. He complained about the dull indifference, the negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of a whole assembly. If Christians believed such a joyful message, why was their singing so lifeless? Now, his father was a man of sincere faith, so rather than joining in the complaint, he offered his son a challenge. If you think the church could use help with its music, why don't you do something about it? He always knew how gifted his son Isaac had been with rhyme, so Watts began composing songs in a new way, different than they had always been written for the church. Ever since he was little, it was always the same thing on Sunday. When the congregation sang, it was from the English Psalter, compiled by Sternhold and Hopkins, published in 1562, the only book used in church singing for 150 years. Every song was a word-for-word translation of the Psalms, right from Hebrew into English, as precise as possible, never altering the original sense. And as a result, the songs were clunky, hard to sing, with references that were lost on most folks. And worst of all, there was no clear Jesus in the singing. Christmas hadn't come when the Psalms were written. And for Watts, without Jesus, there was no joy. So, in 1719, he published his own hymnal that was based on a new approach. Instead of simply translating, he used his imagination to recreate the Psalms as David would have done had he lived in the days of Christianity. That's how Watts described his goal to write as if David knew the stories we know about Christmas and Good Friday and Easter too. How would David have written his songs then? Not everyone liked what he came up with, especially rival songwriters, but the people who came to church to worship God together, they loved his songs. Because Jesus shined through them. They brought the spiritual intent and the true hope of the Psalms to light, making it plain how Jesus fulfilled the longings expressed there. And this meant a new flood of joy for the people who gathered each week for worship.
It wasn't long before Watts's hymnal replaced the old ones. Joy to the world was one of the favorites. All the way back then, just like today. A song which comes from applying Watts's method to Psalm 98. Let's try to imagine how David would have expressed these sentiments if he'd lived after Christ. Listen to the first verse. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him victory. God is good, victorious over all that is not. He is just winning out over injustice. He is kind, winning out over cruelty. He is true, winning out over lies. His heart is for the needy and the oppressed and all who are broken and weary. He heals and he rescues and he delivers and he saves. He has done marvelous things. The Lord has made known his victory. He has revealed his vindication in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Long ago, God promised blessings for the house of Israel to give Abraham and his descendants the law, the way to true life, a land to settle in and a place to grow, as many descendants as the stars, and then a blessing for the whole world through his people. God is faithful. He keeps his promises to Israel. His love is steadfast, and one day all the ends of the earth will see it. Now, for the psalmist, this is a statement of hope. But here is where Watts' method comes to life. What if David were born after Jesus? How would this statement of hope change? If he were born after Jesus, then David would know how this promise was fulfilled. The child born in the manger is the blessing and the victory of God. The fulfillment of God's promise that the seed of Abraham would bless the whole world, that a light would shine in the darkness, a little child would be born to lead them, a shepherd would come to gather and care for the sheep. All the years that the locusts had devoured would be restored, the captives liberated, the prisoners set free. In Jesus Every one of God's promises was fulfilled. That's what David would have sung about here, the joy of every promise fulfilled. Let your heart feel this. On the first Christmas morning, every one of God's good promises is fulfilled in the one who was born for you. Forgiveness for all of your transgressions, freedom from sin and death forever, a brand new beginning when you trust him with your life, a purpose and a path to walk on where he guides you each and every step, the presence of God within you by faith through the Holy Spirit, every day growing in love and grace. Can you feel a bit of the hope and confidence and joy in these promises? Isaac Watts could. 
When he read this psalm and thought about Jesus, he felt joy. And he wanted the people who sang in the church to feel it too. And that's why he wrote his song. See if you can hear how the next line in the psalm might have made Watts think of Jesus. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. At Christmas, Jesus came to save us because God loved the world so much that he chose to come in person to rescue us. Joy to the world. Jesus is the king that was promised and his coming means true joy. Now, even though Jesus' birth isn't mentioned directly, Watts was certain that the psalm pointed forward to him. And it's in the third verse of his song where he makes this plain. Just how Jesus brings joy. Let's spend some time here with the third verse of joy to the world, one phrase at a time. No more let sins and sorrows grow. Not every sorrow comes from sin, but every sin results in sorrow. Sin is any departure from God's way. The way of God is good for us. And when we walk in it, we are good for others. Good fathers and mothers, wives and husbands, sisters and brothers, friends and neighbors. Good for those who are near and far. But when we depart from God's way, sorrow grows. Maybe not immediately, maybe not so obviously, but always sin leads to sorrow. Lying may solve a short-term problem for me, but when trust erodes, sorrow increases for everyone. Greed may enrich me in the moment, but always at the expense of someone else, and that will mean sorrow for them now and for me later. Cruelty, selfishness, vanity, revenge, every departure from God's way, no matter what benefit I find now, it will not compare to the sorrow for me and others later. Sin leads to sorrow, and we have had enough. No more let sins and sorrows grow. Listen to the next phrase. Nor thorns infest the ground. This is the same sentiment as the first clause expressed through one of the oldest images in the Bible. Adam and Eve live in perfect peace and harmony in the garden. There is no sorrow. They are together without shame, enjoying one another and God's presence in paradise. But then their trust wavers. They eat from the one tree God told them to stay away from and everything falls apart. Shame, fear, blaming, separation. They'll have to leave the garden, and from now on, God tells them, thorns and thistles will infest the ground. The thorn is the way life tears at you. Those elements of experience that catch and cut and make you bleed. The way life wounds and hurts you. The thorns are shutdowns and distance. School on screens, church on the couch, fighting with kids to watch worship, 
desperately missing the family of faith. Thorns are sickness and disease, thousands dying every day, empty chairs and loves lost. Thorns are arguments about who's telling the truth and who's lying, political divides that ruin relationships and push people to the extremes. Thorns are friends who turn, siblings who grind you down, love unrequited, insecurity, purposelessness, anxiety, depression, and loneliness. No more. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Watts wrote these words thinking about the truth that sin leads to sorrow and the whole world is caught up in it. Ever since Adam and Eve turned away from God, the whole creation has suffered. But then he brings to mind the message of Christmas. The message of joy. Listen to the last phrase of the third verse. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. This is where Watts points us directly to Jesus. The thorns in the garden were a curse as wide as all of creation, but Jesus has come to make his blessings flow just as far and wide as the thorns. Watts is on to a New Testament theme right here that is absolutely central to the gospel. The good news that makes Christians people who are truly joyful, who sing together in a way that looks nothing like the kind of tired singing that made Watts so frustrated as a young man and inspired him to write songs of joy like this one. Let's spend the rest of our time on this New Testament theme. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul makes the joy of the gospel clear by putting Adam and Jesus side by side, the one responsible for the thorns and the other promising to put an end to the misery forever. This is complex, but it's worth taking our time here. Romans 5:12 reads like this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, Paul is thinking back to the story of the garden where Adam chose to disregard God, introducing thorns into creation so that sin and sorrow began to grow. Even before God had given his law to Moses, listen, Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. Now, this is complicated, but listen carefully. Sin was everywhere after Adam even though it wasn't counted as law-breaking since it happened before God gave the law to Moses. But nonetheless, everything changed for everyone in Adam. Thorns have been everywhere ever since. We all know this, 
But here is where Adam shares something significant with Jesus. That's what Paul means when he calls Adam a type of the one who was to come. Jesus is the one who was to come. Adam is a type of Jesus. When one person is called a type of another, it means that the two have common features which are clarifying when set side by side. In this case, it's the breadth of what happened in Adam that clarifies the breadth of what will happen in Jesus. Here's what Paul wants us to see. In Adam, one bad act had universal implications. In Jesus, one good act will have universal implications. Same pattern, but with the opposite effects. Now, Paul clarifies with contrasting the free gift of Jesus with Adam's trespass. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. The negative consequences of Adam's trespass match the positive consequence of Jesus' grace, similar in type since both affect all, though opposite in outcome. Listen again. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification." Adam's one sin led to the judgment that condemns all to a life of thorns, but Jesus' faithfulness leads to the free gift of justification, covering many sins. At its roots, justification means to put things right or to rectify, like when an accused person is acquitted, or when two people who were estranged come back together again. Or a broken bone is reset so it can heal. That's what justification means. Adam made everything wrong. Jesus will make everything right through the gift that brings justification. And though the consequences of Adam's trespass were great, the consequences of God's grace in Jesus will be greater. Paul's confidence in the supremacy of the gift is clear. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Death exercised dominion through Adam, that much is obvious, but much more surely will life exercise dominion through Jesus for those who receive God's grace, for those who trust Jesus, for those who believe and put their whole selves into Jesus' hands. If you've never done that, pray now that God's grace will come and you would receive the free gift of justification forever right with God. One day, when Christ returns, 
all of the thorns will be gone. Listen to Paul's concluding statement. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. Everyone was thrown into a life of thorns and thistles following Adam. We all know that. But Jesus has come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse was found. Watts heard this truth anticipated in Psalm 98. The curse of Adam was deep, but the blessing of Jesus is deeper. For the whole world, that is a joyful truth. No more thorns infesting the ground. I don't think it was accidental that a crown of thorns was chosen for the head of Jesus when he was crucified. When he went to the cross, he took the curse of Adam's disobedience with him, and there he put it to death, wearing it upon his own head, taking the wound upon himself so that we would not have to bear it ourselves. For now, we still see thorns, but one day the victory that began on the cross and then took another step forward in the resurrection will be fully uncovered. Jesus' blessing will be felt, as Watts says, as far as the curse is found. Imagine it now. Every thorn in your life and all the misery that it causes done away with by King Jesus. All the sorrow and sighing that comes from sin transformed for you into a new song. Every bit of mourning turned into dancing. All the good hopes that you've ever had fulfilled perfectly. Tears wiped away and replaced with gladness and celebration. No more grief, no more suffering, no more separation, no more death, nothing but joy forevermore. That is the promise of Christmas. Where does that leave us now in this time when it's still hard to see the joy and we're all still struggling with all these thorns? The answer is in the first verse of Watts' hymn. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Your heart is where Jesus is ready to rule now. Open your heart to the true king. Let him in. Trust him, let him reign today, and get to work removing the thorns. Then you will know joy even in these days of struggle. Friends, let's pray to the true king now. God, we thank you that when you were born, joy came to the world at last. We thank you that in Christ you chose to come and walk the path that sinners were bound to tread in disobedience to you, 
all the way to the very end, and then upon the cross, you took the crown of thorns upon yourself. God, in these days of struggle when it seems hard to believe, give us eyes of faith to see the joy that still is already here, and help us trust that you've taken the thorns upon yourself. Give us joy and hope and confidence in your goodness and help us become people who shine your light in these days of darkness and then carry us all the way to the end so that together with all the saints, we may one day sing for joy in your presence forever. Until then, sustain us with true hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.